This is episode 220 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Developmental and Synthetic Biology, with Dr. Michael Levin. Hey everybody, we are Drs. Daylon James and Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge in stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. The Stem Cell Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. Today, we have Dr. Michael Levin from Tufts University on the podcast to talk about his research using endogenous bioelectric dynamics to enable new capabilities in regenerative medicine and engineering We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news coming right up. But first, take your human pluripotent stem cell cultures further with MTZer Plus from Stem Cell Technologies, the most widely published medium for feeder-free human ES and IPS cell maintenance is now formulated for enhanced performance and versatility. MTZer Plus reduces medium acidosis for more stable cultures all weekend long. To learn more, visit www.stemcell.com slash mteaserplus. We've got a few fun roundup stories for you today. I mean, a couple of clinical things that we're going to lead off with here. One, and I'll get started with this, um, this one Nature Biotech paper that just came out, Nature Biotechnology which is tangentially associated with stem cell biology. It's going to tie into the second uh, round of paper that I'm going to talk about a little bit later. Both my round of papers today are about the, the liver, which is certainly one of the most regenerative organs out there. And that's certainly in the, the realm of what we discuss here is regeneration, organ gen- regeneration, something we're fond of talking about. The title of this paper is Transplantation of a Human Liver following three days of XC2 normothermic preservation. And I want to frame this with sort of a a broad discussion. We know that there's a shortage of human organs out there for transplant. A few months ago, there was the big news story about the cardiac, you know, the, the pig heart that was transplanted into a human recipient who was not qualified to receive a, a human heart transplant. And that was a, it's a big deal because it's perhaps opening up a door for a new uh, cache, a new collection of organs that would be available for, for transplant down the road. I mean, ultimately, that's what we're trying to get at. It's more organs to reduce the, the overall organ shortage that's out there, and also certainly the, the black market for organs, which unfortunately does exist. And so this uh, these, these folks, this is a, a really a collaborative effort between a number of clinicians, surgeons, bioengineers, mechanical engineers who have um, been able to develop this XC2 preservation device for, for livers uh, where they're able to maintain the function, the appropriate function of a, of a, of a liver that was otherwise going to be discarded. It was not going to be utilized for transplantation purposes because it was not deemed good enough for, for transplantation, this liver would have otherwise been discarded, but they utilize their unique uh, ex vivo XC2 approach to preserve it for up to a week before actually implanting it into a, a patient who needed this liver, obviously after liver failure, and that patient's doing extremely well. So we can dive into it a little bit you know, more, more deeply here. Uh, so we know that these current organ preservation methods have a pretty narrow window. They say usually less than 12 hours to actually assess, transport, uh, transport and implant donor grafts for human transplantation. 
And this is sort of the case for not just liver, but for other organs as well, heart included. You have to really, you know, do, do these procedures pretty quickly. The organs are not stable super long-term, and this is a really hot area of, of study. And so here they transplanted this human liver that was discarded by their saying all centers that were, uh, you know, uh, that were analyzing this in Europe, all centers discarded it. They said it was not good enough for, for use. Um, they preserved it for multiple days using their, their custom machine that was able to basically uh, diving a little bit deeply into the machine itself that was able to do the preservation. And this was actually an earlier Nature Biotech paper published in 2020. The, the cool thing about this particular XD2 normothermic preservation machine was that it can and monitor in real time glucose levels, acidification, uh, output of certain, you know, uh, metabolites and waste. It's a real time monitoring system exclusively optimized for liver transplantation. And this is really a cut above what's out there for preservation of livers long-term. And so that was kind of the basis of the machine that they're using. You can check out the, the earlier Nature Biotech paper to, to take a deeper dive into that. So they use that machine to preserve this liver for up to a week. Um, the other cool thing was they actually uh, corrected that liver that otherwise would have been discarded, uh, according to the other centers out there. They corrected and fixed up the liver. They actually saw that there was a, a, a tumor growth in the liver, and they actually managed to clean that up and clean that out. And they you know, uh, optimized liver even further using their machine. Um, and they transplanted into the patient that otherwise really had no other options. Uh, no other livers were available except for this one, which is like a last resort scenario, sort of like what was happening in the pig heart transplant situation a few months ago in Maryland. Um, and the patient did great. After this liver was cleaned up uh, for a week using this, this machine and maintained using this machine, uh, it was transplanted to the patient and the patient's doing great. Uh, the patient recovered rapidly and developed a, a normal quality of life without further signs of liver damage, such as rejection or injuries to the bile ducts, uh, even after a, a one-year follow-up, right? And the other thing that sort of ties it into a stem cell story was that the normal liver function, the regeneration capacity, which is tremendous in the liver, as we know, and the, the overall proliferation of the cells in the liver uh, was maintained and improved over that course of one month, uh, one year after the transplant. So the liver is doing its thing, it's functioning appropriately. Um, and it really is, I think, a, a milestone for potentially not just liver transplantation, but perhaps other organs as well. If we can maintain organs ex vivo for up to a week or even longer, 10 days, um, you know, this, this hugely opens up the amount of organs that we can use for transplant. And I think ultimately that is the, the bottom line here. We need more organs for transplantation purposes. They have to be high quality organs. They have to be able to survive long-term in the patient into which they're transplanted. So I think it's a, it's, it's a really exciting paper, in my opinion, and I'm excited to see the, the next set of applications for this cool ex vivo, ex situ uh, preservation technology. Yes, agree. As someone who, you know, we do, uh, <clears throat> we get ovaries from uh, brain dead organ donors. And of course, the, the vital organs, heart, you know, lung, liver are, are the first to go and have pr priority. So I'm always at the end of the line with the ovaries. But it's important, you know, that warm, cold and warm ischemic interval there between when you get them out of the patient, when you get them into 
liquid nitrogen or whatever freezing protocol is really critical. And we have to get under four hours. So it's always a mad dash. I can't trust a messenger to do it. I got to go to the hospital, stand by with a bag of ice. And when finally the ovaries come out, I, I, I race back to the lab. So someone who appreciates uh, how critical the time intervals are, are here, I can say this is a, a major innovation. Um, but, you know, just a couple comments. One is how about being that patient, huh? You know, you're, I know, I, thanks God, the outcome in the end is all good, um, better than good. But like, imagine having that conversation where you're about to get the liver that fell off a truck and has a tumor in it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, as I said, the outcome was good. And uh, this is, you know, while I think ambitious, um, and I wouldn't say risky, I'm sure it was all within the realm of, of controlled risk. Uh, you know, it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's lucky, it's fortunate uh, that we had this positive outcome, because if it had gone the other way, I think it would have maybe cast a pall on this technology. And it really is incredible technology, as you said there, out to 10 days, potentially, that's nuts. Uh, and as you also said, with the ability to kind of intervene and correct, fix up these organs, it's a big deal. And I have the same question as you at the end of it is, is this system, this uh, X vivo perfusion system that they've pioneered here. It seems like it's, it's very specific to the liver in terms of the monitoring and all that, but you wonder if a similar device or the same device even can be applied towards the preservation of other vital organs for that uh, critical interval in between getting them out of the donor and into the recipient patient. So uh, I'm really excited just to see how many Patients will probably be saved. Uh, how many vital organs will livers in this case will be uh, used, utilized instead of discarded and more excited to see how this technology is extended. So excited all around the room. Very, very excited and agree with you entirely. I mean, I think the, the dream is to utilize this really cool device for other applications, other organs, heart, kidney, so many other things you can think of. And I think certainly every single organ has its own optimal growth conditions, optimal maintenance conditions. And, you know, I'm not a, a surgeon, of course, uh, and I'm not a bioengineer, but, you know, certainly I think these things can be optimized. And I'm sure folks around the world are, are working on this kind of thing. And I guess to your first point about you know, from the patient's perspective there, <laughs> considering this liver that supposedly quote unquote fell off a truck, right? I mean, if, if the alternative is death, I mean, the, you got to take it, right? And it's, it's the parallel, the same parallel that we saw with the, the guy who received the pig heart, you know, the alternative was death. They were not going to survive if they did not receive that pig heart. In this situation, this particular patient is doing great after even a year. And that's speaking to the power of liver regeneration, the, the incredible regenerative capacity and uh, the ability to, to self-restore the, the liver, right? Even this liver that had a tumor in it at some point. The, the cardiac patient was not as fortunate, unfortunately, you know, as we know, the heart doesn't regenerate as well uh, after this, this uh, a heart is placed in, into the body, especially a pig heart. That's sort of a different situation entirely, right? That's a, a, a xenotransplantation approach. This is a, a human organ. Um, so that's survival. The difference is perhaps attributed to that. Unfortunately, the, the pig heart patient, you know, passed away after I think about a month and a half or so after receiving the, 
the, the experimental heart, but hey, lifespan expended, uh, quality of life extended for, for a month and a half, was able to, to interact with his family and friends, which is a great thing. So yeah, we'll see what happens with this technology. Perhaps there's other great applications for it down the road. Yes, agree. And your comparison there is apt, uh, but I think it also underscores, you know, considering that that was, that's very experimental xenotransplantation, and this is here now, you know, and uh, I think it's underscored by the outcome there. This patient is back to life um, and presumably has a, a really favorable prognosis. So very exciting times. And I'm moving from one amazing clinical innovation here that we just spoke of to another I would say maybe the, the clinical intervention innovation that maybe defines this generation, at least with respect to cancer treatment, we're talking about uh, CAR-T, genetically engineered T cells that uh, can target tumors. Uh, they've shown really amazing potential and uh, anti-tumor activity in treating hematopoietic malignancies. You know, that's, that's pretty much a cure uh, in many cases most cases. Um, so that's been amazing, but the, the technology has uh, limited efficacy in treating solid tumors. And that's been the, the horizon that I think everyone's been looking toward and trying to make progress toward. Uh, but the limitation there is, and generally with CAR-T, is that they have a really poor capacity for in vivo uh, expansion. Um, and so they need to condition the patients. They need to give them this chemotherapy that can be toxic. Um, it can kind of rule out a lot of patients altogether. Um, and even when you do that, you know, chemo kind of conditioning, the T cells that do uh, adopt, that do engraft um, and become integrated, they terminally differentiate and ultimately become exhausted and dysfunctional. One approach uh, that's meant to extend the life of these cells in vivo is to reprogram them with a kind of stem cell phenotype so that they have more renewal potential, extend their lifespan. And the existing approaches to that end though are confined to the manufacturing phase, right? When you have the cells in hand and you can manipulate them, once they go in the body, they're kind of out there. You can't influence them without influencing the rest of the body. And that's where this approach of uh, orthogonal, uh, orthogonal cytokine receptors came in. And that's a way that you can dose a patient with a, a, you know, a molecule that'll have a specific effect on a target and it won't have any off-target effect. The way you do that is in this case, you take these cytokine receptors, um, the classic one that's been demonstrated is IL-2 receptor, and you, you mutate it so that there's a mutant form of the receptor that only binds a mutant form of the native cytokine. Um, and the mutant cytokine doesn't bind at all the endogenous form in the body and neither does the endogenous form bind the mutant receptor. So you get this one-to-one -one, uh, relationship with these mutant uh, cytokine receptor pairs. Uh, in this case, um, this was kind of a, a technical story, I would say, with, I think, a lot of potential, tremendous potential. It's a bit of a, a nuts and bolts story, not necessarily pioneering any concepts, but it was a powerhouse group that was led by Anthony Ribas, Carl June, and Christopher Garcia in between UCLA, Stanford, uh, Perlman School of Medicine, where all those guys are housed. And of course, uh, the common denominator here being the Parker Institute for Cancer Immunotherapy, what they did here essentially is they created chimeric receptors that hooked up that orthogonal apparatus 
uh, with the mutant IL-2 cytokine, except instead of firing up the intracellular domain of the IL-2 receptor, as it would normally do, even in an orthogonal relationship, they've created these chimeric receptors to test the ability of other uh, uh, interleukin receptors, in this case, IL-4, IL-7, IL-9, and IL-21. So they took the intracellular domains from those IL receptors and they fuse them, making these chimeras so that they would be activated by this mutant IL-2. Uh, and what they showed effectively is that the one candidate, uh, the IL-9 um, receptor intracellular domain chimera, uh, was robust. It caused activation of STAT1, 3, 5, and caused the T cells to assume characteristics of stem cell memory and effector T cells. And uh, as you might expect, these, this treatment had superior anti-tumor efficacy in two mouse models that, that were solid tumor models, uh, melanoma and pac pancreatic cancer, even without doing that preconditioning, that chemo conditioning. So I think this is, I mean, while it is a bit of a nuts and bolts story applying previously uh, identified concepts and approaches, I, I think this is representative of how we're tuning and hacking these systems to generate very robust uh, therapeutic tools that in this case may get over the hump of applying the CAR-T technology toward the treatment of solid tumors, which I think is, is perhaps not the final frontier because the idea of using CAR-T for everything as we've spoken about from fibrosis to you know, targeting anything in the body. Um, but I think in, in the treatment of cancer, solid tumors for CAR-T is the final frontier. And I think we're one step closer with this big study from Nature. Absolutely. Great, great paper here in Nature. I mean, this is a real powerhouse team. Chris Garcia, who's an expert in all things synthetic biology at Stanford. Carl June, of course, one of the, the godfathers of immunotherapy. Um, very collaborative, multiple major academic institutions across the U.S. are partaking here, folks at UCLA, Stanford, Penn. Um, and you're right. I mean, I think solid tumors are really the final frontier for not just CAR-T, but really cancer therapy in general. How do you crack that shell of the solid tumor and get to the, the real juicy stuff inside and kill all those cancer cells inside? One thing you notice here is they didn't just use a system to target any old solid tumors. They targeted pancreatic cancer, all right? And we know pancreatic cancer is one of the most lethal types of cancers out there. I think what the statistics are like greater than 80% to 90% mortality at some point with, with pancreatic cancer. It's really a, a death sentence in a lot of situations, unfortunately. So it got me to think about, you know, in, in this situation where you have efficacy in a mouse model and in an in vivo system and targeting something like pancreatic cancer, you got to think this is going to be accelerated, you know, at least accelerated to therapy, accelerated to clinical trials, you know, by the FDA and other folks who are, who are doing these, these clinical things, right? I mean, because as we've discussed in the past with other folks who have been on the show with, you know, focusing on pancreatic cancer, options are still pretty limited. And to me, this seems really promising and perhaps they're going to fast track this towards, towards therapy and uh, trials, don't you think? Oh, for sure. And I think this is, we're kind of in the, in the final leg of the race here, I would hope at least. And uh, that's why it's such a high profile paper. That's why it takes such a, uh, you know, a conglomerate of these, you know, amazing researchers and physicians 
to get this going. And I think this is really tweaking this tool just in the run-up to clinical trials, which I, I would guess are right around the corner. Yeah, for sure. I mean, anything related to pancreatic cancer and showing efficacy against it, like what they're showing here is, is, is going to get, get the green light. Absolutely. We're going to go back to the liver for a second. That's my second you know, story. Both my stories have to do with the liver. One is more of a clinical story that I just talked about, right? With this ex vivo perfusion system for maintaining livers for super long period of time. But now we're going to bring it back to more of the basic science, more of the, the stem cell side of things. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about something we've been talking a lot about recently on the show, which is uh, these single cell atlases. Okay. It seems like we've, you would think that every single type of single cell atlas has been done. It's been done in the last couple of years in part because of this, the amazing accessibility of the technology, the technology becoming somewhat cheaper. Multiple people around the world are starting to use it. We actually talked about on the last show, these, uh, the human cell lab atlas right which the first set of papers for that finally came out in science these super high profile papers you know cataloging all the different cell types found in the the human body using single cell this is a specific application of single cell technology uh towards liver regeneration the title of this paper which is in cell stem cell is the spatio-temporal program of zonal liver regeneration following acute injury uh, these are some folks from the Weizmann Institute over in Israel. First author is Shani Ben-Mosh, and last author here is Shalev Iskowitz. So we know that the liver has this remarkable ability to regenerate. We just talked about it, right? This patient received this damage falling off a truck liver, and uh, that liver was still able to integrate into the body and restore its function, regenerate appropriately, and it's fully functional after a year, right? And uh, even after acute damage, like in this particular situation, they were talking about acetaminophen, acute acetaminophen or APAP intoxication. So this is actually, and I, I did a little bit of uh, research on the side here, APAP intoxication, acute acetaminophen or Tylenol intoxication is the number one cause of acute liver injury, as you might expect. People unfortunately overdose on Tylenol or you know acetaminophen or whatever, and it can cause a lot of damage. And so what they're trying to show here is uh, what's actually going on in the, the liver cells in response to that damage and how does liver actually regenerate uh, during that injury? How do the existing surviving cells upregulate certain transcriptional pathways to compensate for the loss of those uh, cells that died because of the acetaminophen intoxication? And what they showed through a bunch of single cell analysis was that hepatocytes can proliferate throughout the liver lobule, right? During the, the post-injury process, but this, this creates sort of a, a mitotic pressure is what they call it. And this is required to repopulate that necrotic pericentral zone in the liver. That's that was, you know, where those hepatocytes, the, the pericentral hepatocytes died in response to the acetaminophen. Okay. There's like this select group of hepatocytes that's typically the ones that die first after acetaminophen or APAP intoxication, right? But then the other cells are upregulating certain gene pathways, uh, fetal specific genes, actually some that are pretty well known, even for me as a cardiac biologist, like AFP, alpha fetal protein, CDH17. And those uh, adjacent cells are reprogramming to a pericentral state. Okay. So basically the surviving cells are upregulating these 
uh, these ancestral, these primordial, immature gene pathways to reprogram to a pericentral state. And we've actually talked about this a lot, I think, on the podcast recently, this idea of de-differentiation in the body, natural de-differentiation, and how this can happen after situations of, of injury, for example, in, in this situation, right? And so these zonated endothelial and hepatis, hepatic stellate cells, or HSCs, uh, and macrophage populations are differentially involved in the immune recruitment, proliferation, and remodeling of, of, of the matrix. And then there's this massive infiltration of myeloid cells uh, in response, in, in accordance with a big decline in global antigen presentation. So it's a, it, I think it really comes down to that compensatory mechanism that's happening in the liver. So you, the, the targeted cells, the cells that are targeted by the acetaminophen uh, intoxication. Those are the ones that die, but really the, the adjacent cells are going to take over and do their job to compensate for lost cells by quickly activating. And that's another point, quickly activating these fetal transcriptional pathways that are found in the liver, compensate for loss of the cells, take over, proliferate. And then this is really the basis for this astounding regenerative capacity uh, in the liver. Not only situations for acute you know, intoxication, acute liver injury here, or perhaps more chronic conditions as well. I think the chronic is, it's a tougher nut to crack, right? You know, this idea of chronic liver, liver failure through uh, constant alcohol exposure, that can really limit some of the amazing regenerative capacity of the liver. Um, but at least in acute situations like APAP intoxication, acetaminophen intoxication, these residual liver cells, hepatocytes can really do a great job in, in restoring the overall function of the, the healthy liver. Yeah, the, the maladaptive chronic injury type stuff, that's, that's tough. And how do you get at it with single cell, you know, given the long interval over which that takes place here, the, the real benefit of this model is that it takes place over, I guess, four days or something that they're able to look at really discrete time points. Um, <clears throat> and I, you know, th this, not enough, I think, uh, attention is paid to this mode of liver damage and the therapeutic inroad there because as you said it's it's the most common and also in terms of cell therapy it, it maybe is the the earliest best application of like liver organoids for example um because you could have like a modular off-site mini organ that could function perform the function essential functions of the liver and in that case you wouldn't have to have a long term right you just have to have them bridge the gap while the liver is is recovering and regenerating um, so that you don't die. So I, I like the, the model that they use here. My only question here about the study as a whole is that as soon as I saw zonation in the title, I expect to see a lot of spatial transcriptomics, especially that they're going single cell. And uh, I didn't find any, I'm assuming it's not in the supplement, they would have brought it up there in terms of the profile. But um, I'm wondering, I'm guessing it, it just hasn't got there yet, but I'm expecting to see uh, a lot of stories using spatial transcriptomics in the liver because the the, the you know the the architecture is so critical to the regenerative function. So I'm I'm looking forward to seeing that in from this group or others. No, I think there actually was a bit of spatial transcriptomics that was conducted here as well. Um, perhaps really it wasn't the the major focus, but I, I do think there was some done here. But I think I agree with you. I think this is a, a very specific approach, very specific targeted injury and in acetaminophen intoxication. And the other general question I have is, you know, how applicable would this 
particular data set be to other situations of acute liver injury. I think there's other examples of that too, not just acetaminophen. Um, and certainly acetaminophen as a, as, a, as a drug, a small molecule can really detrimentally impact uh, transcriptional activity in these cells in a very targeted specific way. I don't know if it's, it's just the death right? But perhaps the drug itself is also having a transcriptional effect. So as, as we know, small molecules do, you know, small molecules have a bunch of off-target effects. So I'm curious to see, you know, what about another targeted acute injury of the liver? Are we going to see some similar transcriptional impacts? Uh, and the other small caveat here, just mentioned the limitation, these samples are apparently taken every 24 hours, which doesn't necessarily get the transcription, the, the temporal resolution that you would want in a, such a rapid situation of regeneration, like in liver, perhaps, you know, something like every hour or every few hours, you can get a sample and do your transcriptional analysis, right? But that's if you have a, an unlimited bank, which we don't, right? <laughs> well, Rune, you got that startup money. Go, go get after it with 10x. <laughs> <clears throat> but you're a heart guy, so I guess you'll leave it for them. One, uh, segue I have here is that, you know, this is a, you mentioned the, the, the reactivation of a fetal program, and that's going to play into my next story here. Uh, although not for a regenerative purpose, but more of that maladaptive disease function. I'm going to come back to that. Um, but first, just a, a brief intro. This is about pulmonary hypertension, okay, which is frequently associated with heart failure, Rune, you must know. Um, and uh, it, it, it can occur from many different uh, causes. So you can have pulmonary vascular disease or heart or lung disease. You can have pulmonary embolism and other causes as well, but uh, it's characterized typically by progressive sustained increase in the pulmonary vascular resistance and arterial pressure. And that leads to reduced cardiac output culminating ultimately in right ventricular failure and death. Um, when pulmonary hypertension develops specifically in the pulmonary arterioles. It's called pulmonary arterial hypertension. Um, and that's characterized by vascular remodeling, uh, including neo-intima development and these complex plexiform lesions that form um, and ultimately occlude uh, the precapillary arteries and lead to their loss. Uh, so vascular remodeling is a hallmark of pulmonary arterial hypertension. And that is results from obviously uh, an alteration in the vascular cells, right? Their transcriptional program and their behavior. Um, and indeed, if you take vascular cells from a patient with pulmonary arterial hypertension and culture them, uh, the phenotype manifests and is maintained uh, for a sustained period outside. So it looks like it's a cell intrinsic issue. Uh, at least once the disease um, is, is set. Uh, but the regulatory mechanisms that cause the normal vasculature to assume this bizarre phenotype are elusive. They remain elusive. It's known that the cells change, right? But the mechanisms of how they change is not really well understood. Uh, there is a hypothesis, of course, and that's voiced by Sonny Savai Pulamseti. Sorry for the mispronunciation of, of the name who is at the Max Planck Institute for Heart and Lung Research. And her and her group hypothesized that the persistent phenotype of these pulmonary arterial hypertensive vascular cells results from alterations in histone modification and, and associated epigenetic changes. 
So they went after this hypothesis using, I think at this point, a very straightforward approach, um, RNA-seq and CHIP-seq. Uh, they took uh, the pulmonary arterial fibroblasts from a patient with pulmonary arterial hypertension versus control lungs. They show that there was, you know, thousands of differentially transcribed genes. That's not really a big surprise. They also showed there's a lot of different um, uh, uh, chromatin accessibility, over 4,000 active enhancers that are altered in the patient samples. Um, but ultimately, they settle on in integrating these two uh, approaches, and they identify a signature um, that shows that the, the, the transcription of uh, genes that underlie lung morph morphogenesis were derepressed in the patient sample. So morphogenesis, you know, things that typically take place during uh, fetal stages, and that's what how I led there. Coming back to that, it looks like there's this activation of TBX4, TBX5, SOX9, again, all usually expressed during morphogenesis. Um, and that uh, seems to contribute to the phenotype because when you silence these factors or this E1A-associated protein, P300, using RNAi or small molecule inhibition, you get regression of the, of the PAH, pulmonary arterial hypertension cellular phenotype, regression of that mesenchymal signature that the cells display. Uh, and here, I think this is why it was a science translational medicine story here. And, you know, I think a stem cell story in that it, it's going to the root of disease here, but it, it was a clinical and translational story here because they actually showed that if you uh, use pharmacological inhibition of this P300 protein complex, uh, you uh, can reduce the phenotype in three different uh, models, rodent models of pulmonary arterial hypertension. And finally, they take these precision cut slices from human P, uh, pulmonary arterial hypertension lungs and culture them ex vivo in the, in the context of this compound and show that it can also reduce the phenotype there. So this is, I, I, you know, at this level, when you're reading papers in these big journals, there's all kinds of tech crazy that goes in there. Each paper costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. I think by contrast, this was a, a really more straightforward, I would say, uh, economical study that used uh, methods that aren't, you know, cutting edge, but are still advanced enough to, to give resolution of this phenotype in these cells and specifically, most importantly, in these patient samples with a, a treatment that may actually uh, be eligible for clinical trial. We'll have to see about off target, but could go into uh, trial relatively soon. And at the very least, I, I think understanding the, the mechanism by which the, the phenotype exerts itself, this reactivation of a fetal transcriptional program, I think is an important trans, uh, conceptual advance. So Arun, I don't know what you think, but I, I, I really enjoyed the story. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. I think there's a few different reasons as to why I enjoyed it. One, as a as a cardiac biologist and a cardiac developmental biologist, it was cool to see TBX5 mentioned because you know that's all obviously a very important gene for for cardiac development too. But also, uh, looks like it's you know important for early lung development, which I don't know as much about. But yes, I, I think the power here is in the models. This is a like you said a pretty economical study, just you know RNA sequencing and chip seek of primary samples. Uh, and then from there, really validating the pharmacological intervention and the 
the treatment, quote unquote treatment in these multiple mouse models. Okay. Three, sorry, rat models, three different rat models, um, or maybe rodent models. I actually don't know if they're a mouse or rat, three different rodent models. Uh, and also this ex vivo slice culture uh, from pulmonary hypertension to validate your observation in multiple different finding in multiple different model systems and relevant model systems too, in vivo and also human model systems. I think that's probably why this is a science translational medicine paper. One little thing to mention here, I'm actually very happy that they didn't consider iPSCs at all in this particular paper. Maybe that's very taboo of me to say since I'm an IPS modeling guy and we talk about IPSC modeling all the time in this on this show. But this is one of those situations where you don't necessarily need IPSCs to model pulmonary hypertension. And I think in this situation, it probably wouldn't tell you much, right? Because as we know for IPSC derivation, it screws up and you know changes the entire epigenetic landscape, which is what they're trying to maintain here with these primary cultures of you know the, the fibroblasts from PAH patients. So iPSCs aren't good for everything, Dale. That's what I'm saying here. They're good for a lot of different things, but in this situation, I'm glad they didn't they didn't use them. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess lacking any kind of embryologic or developmental angle, although it is a reactivationist fetal program, I think that it, it makes more sense here to go right to the patient tissue if you can get it. And that's what they had the opportunity to do here. And I think that also is why this was such a high profile paper is because you're treating tissue where the phenotype has already exerted itself. And, and there's no real discussion of whether or not it's reversing uh, the, the you know, disease, right? Uh, a cellular phenotype, um, ex vivo, even with the substantiation of the rodent models there, I don't think is enough um, to say that we can be putting this into patients for, right away. But um, at least as an idea, I think it's really important to show that you know, patients who are already affected by this condition maybe could find some help. So uh, an exciting story, uh, as you said, economical, um, but a major impact. So moving on to the interview uh, with Michael Levin in just a minute, but first uh, I have a message from Stem Cell Technologies. Neuroscientists looking for more predictive power in their disease models are increasingly adopting human pluripotent stem cells in their research. Stem Cell Technologies offers products, protocols, and training to support HPSC-derived neural models. Explore their collection of technical videos and webinars on neurological disease modeling by visiting www.stemcell.com slash neural disease model. All right, everybody, for this episode, we have with us from Tufts University, Dr. Mike Levin, who is director of the Allen Discovery Center at Tufts, also distinguished professor in the Department of Biology and the Vannevar Bush Chair. Dr. Levin is also associate faculty at the Wies Institute. His group focus is on understanding the biophysical mechanisms that implement decision-making during complex pattern regulation and harnessing endogenous bioelectric dynamics toward rational control of growth and form. I don't know what that means either, but he's going to explain it to us. The lab's current main directions are understanding how somatic cells from bioelectrical networks for storing and recalling pattern memories that guide morphogenesis, 
creating next generation AI tools for helping scientists understand top-down control of pattern regulation and using these insights to enable new capabilities in regenerative medicine and engineering. Dr. Levin, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. And let's actually start off by taking a bit of a step back and talking about some of your first forays into developmental biology a few decades ago. You actually did your PhD and postdoc at Harvard with Cliff Taven and Mark Mercola, respectively. Dr. Mercola was actually on my thesis committee, uh, where you performed the first characterization of some of the mechanisms that allow embryos to consistently form left-right asymmetric body structures, really focusing on the active in sonic hedgehog and nodal signaling pathways. The work is actually on nature's list of 100 milestones of developmental biology in the century. So that's pretty cool. Walk us through kind of that time in your career and what really inspired you to work on such a fundamentally important mechanism in developmental biology, this idea of left-right asymmetry um, that you've kind of stuck with in your career for a really long time since. Yeah, my, uh, my work in developmental biology actually started even before that. As an undergrad, I worked with uh, Susan Ernst, who uh, was, um, was a professor that studied um, patterning in sea urchins. And some of the very first uh, research in that, in that area I did by uh, uh, looking at applied magnetic field effects on sea urchin development and uh, trying to ask how, uh, how external magnetic fields could interface with some of the biophysics that drives development. And then in, in Cliff's lab, you know, I, I, I fundamentally was interested in, in development because we all take this, this journey from something that some people might call, quote unquote, just physics or just chemistry. So, you know, an unfertilized oocyte, a collection of molecules to a, uh, a, a, a complex cognitive being with, with goals and preferences and hopes and dreams and so on. And so that, that, that slow process of how physics becomes mind is you know, perhaps one of the most amazing mysteries that, that any of us can, can work on. So uh, that's, what, that, that's what drew me to embryonic development. And, and I wanted to uh, work with Cliff because of, uh, of, of a talk actually he gave in the, at the first year uh, in, uh, in grad school. And in, in his lab, uh, it was kind of uh, somewhat fortuitous that, that this amazing uh, project became available where uh, through, through Cliff's uh, and, uh, and uh, his, his postdocs work on uh, sonic hedgehog, uh, you know, they worked on it in the limb and in the uh, neural tube. But actually, there was also some data showing that it was asymmetric in the very early embryo. And this would have been the first gene known to be asymmetrically expressed. And you know, as soon as I saw that, I, I said, this is, uh, this, this is remarkable. We, we have to work on this because uh, a, asymmetry for many reasons is, is re really uh, has, has fundamental, um, fundamental interests. There's lots of physics and other aspects that are, uh, that are, that are uh, required to, to get left-right asymmetry correct. And so this, this kind of merged many of my interests, including physics, uh, developmental biology, um, all of those things. So that's, that's how I got into it. Yeah, turned out to be, turned out to be a fascinating project. Yes, fascinating. And, and you, you touched on it there. What's so fascinating, miraculous and humbling about uh, what we do is that journey, right? From just physics, the molecules to biology and tissues and organized structures that perform function and then like transcending that um, to, to the mind. You know, uh, I think that's one of the, the first things as, as a biologist that really struck me and overwhelmed me with the complexity. Um, it was very humbling. And I think we're in a similar place with uh, therapeutics and cells, right? As cell-based therapies move closer to reality, there's still significant challenges to construction of tissues at like 
you know, practical scales, or maybe call them therapeutically applicable scales and more traditional paradigm of organ tissue transplantation, let's say. Um, and of course, everything's a bit of a hack when you're working with in vitro cultured pluripotent stem cells, you know, that don't really have a correlate in biology. Um, but I, I have been impressed uh, with approaches uh, like that of Matthias Lutoff, who combines this kind of cell intrinsic uh, morphogenic momentum, let's call it, with this in extrinsically enforced physical scaffolds. You know, it's this combination of the cells doing what their program is and also kind of engineering it. Um, you know, having tissues that are both made and grown, so to speak. Um, so given that intro and that tremendous journey from physics to biology to transcending in the mind and also a similar journey we're taking from, you know, cells uh, to actual practical tissues. Um, and given your experience with pattern formation at the earliest stages, as you alluded to with left-right asymmetry, how do you envision uh, tissues and perhaps even someday organs being made from cells in like a really practical way? What's, what's your vision of how that's going to happen? Yeah, my vision it has has a lot to do with uh, really this this very deep invariant between the question of mind and the question of pattern. And and I'm certainly not the first person to think this way. You know, Al, Alan Turing, who's one of the forefathers of computer science, uh, was very interested in in artificial intelligence and his, and in mind and in various uh, embodiments of mind. And he also had this amazing paper on uh, self-organization of morphogenesis, right? Of of uh, so-called Turing patterns and. Uh, you know, you might wonder why would somebody who was interested in, in computation and mind be interested in morphogenesis? And I actually think that's that's not a coincidence. These are these are fundamentally the same problem, I think. And uh, the way I think about it is that uh, morphogenesis is basically the behavior of a collective intelligence in anatomical space, whereas uh, modern uh, brains and the nervous systems guide the movement of bodies through three dimensional space. Those tricks came about by pivoting something that evolution uh, learned to do long before that, which is to move the configuration of the body through morphospace. So anatomical morphospace being the, the, all the possible configurations of the anatomy. And embryos have to, they, they start out in the uh, quote unquote wrong region of morphospace, and they have to get to the correct region corresponding to their proper species specific uh, target morphology. And what's so so this becomes a navigation task, and this is a navigation task performed by a kind of uh, swarm intelligence of these cells working together. And what's really cool about uh, embryogenesis, regeneration, remodeling, metamorphosis, all of these uh, cancer suppression, all of these things have one fundamental thing in common, which is a kind of anatomical homeostasis. It's a kind of ability to start off at the wrong place. In fact, not even necessarily at the place you expect, which is to be a single cell. You might be a salamander limb and you might be amputated anywhere along the proximodistal uh, plane, or you might be uh, a newt uh, whose early embryonic cells are made far too large uh, and they will still basically make a correct newt with the correct size by adjusting the number of cells and in fact using all kinds of neat tricks to compensate for the fact that the cells are too big. Uh, there are numerous examples where basically what, what the biology is able to do is to to uh, deploy a kind of intelligence. And I don't mean that sort of in quotes or, or metaphorically. I literally mean intelligence in the sense of being able to solve problems. In fact, navigation problems. There are lots of uh, roboticists working on um, swarm robotics where, where groups of, of motile robots are able to 
uh, solve various problems in space. And this is evolution figured this out a really long time ago. And so I think that uh, where, where really the promise of regenerative medicine is going to be fulfilled is when we uh, move from the current approaches which, which treat uh, the cells as, as hardware, Right? And, and seek to really micromanage the process by giving them appropriate signals and, and getting, you know, uh, uh, 3D printing and, and, and all these kinds of things, moving towards a realization that we're dealing here with an agential material. This is not just a structural material the way engineers have been working with for, for, you know, for hundreds of years. This is not even an active material or even a computational material. These, this is an agential material. These cells used to be independent, free-living animals. They have their own agendas. They have their own capacity for behavior. And the most important thing they have is the ability to merge together in, uh, in groups to form larger scale structures that solve bigger problems. Right? So you have single cells that solve single cell problems, things like metabolic uh, homeostasis and, and, uh, and so on. And collectively, they, they solve bigger problems like navigating in morphous space, starting off in various uh, uh, diseased or damaged or, or um, uh, uh, kind of early stage conditions and moving to where they're supposed to be. And so I think that much like uh, computer science took the leap from being, you know, in the, in the 40s and 50s, the way you would program a computer was you would physically rewire the hardware, right? That's you can all visualize what that looks like. I have a, a, I have a slide that I was showing these talks where, you know, this woman sitting there, she's literally pulling wires in and out to get the computer to do whatever it's going to do. But now on your laptop, when you switch from Photoshop to Microsoft Word, you don't get out your soldering iron and start rewiring. And the reason you don't do that, right, is because uh, uh, computer scientists figured out that if your hardware is good enough, and I'm going to claim that biological hardware is definitely good enough, what you can do is you can control, uh, control its behavior by stimuli, by inputs, by communication with it, uh, as opposed to micromanagement. And you can take advantage of the intelligence, the problem solving of these cell collectives to, to do a kind of behavior shaping more than micromanaging or more than engineering directly. And I think that's going to enable us to get to large scale morphological outcomes that are going to be very difficult to reach through uh, basic stem cell biology, CRISPR, genomic editing, those kinds of things. Yeah, it's a perspective that we don't really touch on a whole lot here on the show, this idea of cell intrinsic yeah. intelligence. That's, that's a very powerful concept. And, you know, early development especially is really filled with examples of that cell intrinsic intelligence, you know, going from a single zygote to you know, a complex multicellular organism. I actually wanted to get your perspective on a related topic. Actually, there's a, a new developmental technology that we talk a lot on the show that might end up interfacing pretty well with some of your work studying actually, for example, bioelectric signaling and also some of these examples of cell intrinsic intelligence. I'm talking about these human pluripotent stem cell derived blastoids, these analogs of early embryogenesis, the early blastocysts that are found during your early development um, derived from induced pluripotent stem cells. They have a bunch of different applications. They've really caught the, you know, caught on quite dramatically and quite quickly in our field. What do you think about the promise of that particular technology for studying human developments, early human development, these artificial blastoids, and how well do you think they might be able to interface with the work that you're doing? Yeah, I think I think these kind of these kinds of synthetic models are extremely interesting, and I kind of have a have an uh, an opposite view of this than than a lot of a lot of people. Where you know you often hear these critiques at how well these things don't really recapitulate the in vivo situation that are not really you know accurate and this and that. Uh, 
I, I actually think that we learn the most from exposing cellular collectives to novel scenarios and novel environments that are as alien to their um, kind of in vivo expected situation as possible. That's where you really learn what the collective intelligence is capable of. That's where you really get to find out what decisions they're making, what measurements they're taking, uh, what what their capabilities are in novel environments. I mean, you know, the the, the basic uh, point of intelligence is not simply that you can do the same thing over and over again, like we see in normal development. Uh, it's the, 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 the center of, of this concept of intelligence is that you're able to handle novelty. You're able to handle new situations, new problems to reuse uh, the, the, the tools that you already have, whether they be the software tools or the, the, the hardware of the cell, to solve new problems and have adaptive behavior in new contexts. And so I think uh, blastoids, organoids, the kind of synthetic biobots that we make, so like the Zena, you know, the, uh, the Xenobots that we make and, and the, all of these other things are in fact going to teach us much more than uh, the, the sim simply trying to recapitulate the in vivo situation. I think that normal development really lulls us into a false sense of security in the sense that it's pretty reliable. And, you know, acorns make oak trees and, you know, Xenopus uh, eggs make frogs. And so you sort of think, well, what else would it be? You know, that's that's the only way it's going to be. But actually, once you start exposing these cells and tissues to novel environments, you find out that actually they can do a lot more. And, you know, you find out that, for example, the uh, the ectoderm of the frog embryo, those those frog skin cells, their default behavior isn't, in fact, to be a, a boring sort of two dimensional life on the outside of the animal, keeping out the pathogens. In fact, by default, when freed from the instructive interactions of the rest of the cells, they make xenobots. They make these these spherical, um, uh, self-directed, motile creatures that have all kinds of amazing behaviors, including making uh, uh, rep replicating themselves in a way that no other animal does through kinematic self-replication, and so on. And so, uh, yeah, I actually think these kind of synthetic models teach us about the most important thing, which is the ability of all of these things to handle novelty, because that raises not only new um, new, new, it, it not only opens new, new ideas for roadmaps for regenerative medicine, meaning taking advantage of these capacities to, uh, to, to coax the cells to build things that we don't know how to micromanage and won't know how to for, for quite some time. Uh, and it also sheds really interesting light on evolution because what we're seeing is that evolution doesn't make specific solutions to specific um, environments and, and niches. It actually makes problem solving machines that are able to solve all kinds of new problems they haven't seen before. So all, all of those things really are, are, are a, a great outcome of, of these kinds of synthetic, biorobotics, um, organoids, all that stuff. Wow. I mean, this is, this is why I love doing this podcast. I'm listening to you. I'm just thinking about whole different ways of framing the stuff we do just with your language. And, and yep. I think maybe the, your, your approach, the way you consider these cells as you know, having their own agenda and having intelligence. I love the term the cellular collective. I'm not going to call anything tissues anymore. I'm going to call it all cellular collectives. Makes me think of the Borg. Um, the, the, the idea that, I mean, is really exciting here that's buried or, I mean, really on the surface of what, what you're saying here is therapies, right? Is if you can get these cells to work uh, on, a, on a more, I wouldn't say freewheeling, but in a more adaptable way that, that doesn't depend on our engineering, you know, because we're no, we're no engineers like nature. Um, so I love this idea of, it's kind of like regrowth. And I think it's, it's really uh, a great example of it is this exciting story you just had in Science Advances a few months back with this wearable bioreactor uh, that you put on an amputated hind limb of a xenopus and 
it generated long-term functional recovery in Xenopus um, over the course of many months. Uh, this really has increased resonance for me and probably Arun since just a few weeks ago, we covered this story that was in nature about terminally differentiated adult cells from human that were completely reprogrammed to pluripotency using only chemicals. So it really kicks open the door, this idea of absent any kind of viral reprogramming or, or getting stuff into cells working in the nucleus um, directly, at least, that you could just have a cocktail of chemicals. And that's very much what you did here in this bioreactor. You had a cocktail of chemicals that led to this functional regrowth. Is this kind of what you're, you're envisioning when you talk about the, the therapeutic horizon? Or is this like a really crude example of what we can expect to see moving forward? Well, well, both. I mean, this this is uh, the the amazing thing, which uh, I don't know how clear that was from from the paper. Is uh, it, it is a very crude example because this this cocktail that that grew back after a twenty four hour exposure grew back legs in in frogs. That was our first attempt at it. That wasn't cocktail number seventy two out of a screen of you know eight hundred cocktails. That was the first one we tried. And so I've got to think that uh, if we, you know, as we perfect this, and if we really knew what we were doing, the the optimal kind of uh, future version of this is going to be amazing. Like this is this was just our first guess. And so so I absolutely think this was a crude, uh, just a very, a very crude first step example of what's what's possible. Um, I want to I want to sort of talk about the, the the strategy here because what we didn't do was implant stem cells or continuously monitor and 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 sort of adjust the leg or um you know 3d print any kind of a pieces this was literally just the the intervention took place in the first 24 hours and the effects to the the leg grew for a year and a half and the reason that we even tried this before is that i i am firmly convinced that the roadmap to regenerative medicine is not through micromanagement it's through finding the native uh, subroutine calls of the, the software of morphogenesis. So, so finding out what are the triggers of specific kinds of very complex uh, morphogenetic events that the body already knows how to do and, uh, and, and, and kickstarting those because again, uh, you know, uh, as, as you know from computer science, yeah, you could write everything in machine code, but why would you want to when you have, the, when you have access to, the high, to these high level libraries that the system already has built in? So I view our goal as trying to figure out what is the control structure of morphogenesis and how high up can we interface with it? Because what, what I would really like to do, and I think what we did here and what we did before in the tail regeneration work and so on, is not to say, here are the cell types you're going to need, and I'm going to directly differentiate all these cell types, nor here's the shape of the organ you need. All we literally said in that 24 hours to these cells is make whatever normally goes here. That's it. We, you know, the, the, the cocktail that we used is not specific for legs. There's nothing leg specific about it. In fact, we previously um, induced leg regeneration using the same, uh, the same bioelectric drug that we used for inducing tail regeneration in tadpoles with spinal cord and muscle. And in both cases, you don't get a tumor, you don't get a kidney, you don't get a mess. What you get is the actual organ that, it, that belongs there. And so that's, that's the trick is not micromanagement. I wanna, and I just, just to give you a much more specific example, uh, we, we, we study a lot, we study bioelectricity a lot, meaning electrical um, communication between cells. And the reason we study bioelectricity is because if you ask how is it that 
collections of cells get together in a way that allows large-scale intelligences to emerge, right? We see that in the brain. So you and I are collections of neurons. These neurons somehow work together to have uh, goals and preferences and memories that don't belong to any individual cell. They're a property of the collective. And we know, you know, from, from neuroscience, we know, of course, that this is that this is achieved through these electrical networks. Well, that that uh, that strategy, evolution discovered that around the time of bacterial biofilms, using electricity as the cognitive glue that binds tiny competent subunits into bigger units that are competent about bigger things. And so we were interested in studying these these this this hypothesis that these bioelectric uh, networks outside of the brain could store patterns that guide the movement of this collective intelligence through morphous space, basically guide the movement of development and regeneration and so on. And so uh, one of the things that, that we showed is that there's a very specific bioelectric pre-pattern that goes on in the early frog face that tells the face uh, where the eyes should go. In fact, in fact, there's, a, there's an electric face pattern that was discovered by my colleague Danny Adams when she was in my group. Uh, looking at that basically lays out all the all the features of, of the of the nascent face that then you can use to diagnose uh, uh, defects and in fact repair those defects and so on. And so what there's a there's a particular pattern that uh, that uh, is what triggers eye development. And so we took that bioelectric pattern and we induced it elsewhere in the embryo. And the way you do that, we don't apply fields. There's no magnets. There's no electromagnetics. We we modulate ion channels. So you can inject RNA encoding specific ion channels, or you can use drugs to open and close those channels and so on. So we induce, we, we inject a, a set of potassium channels in a particular location, let's say of cells that are going to give rise to the gut. And these cells basically get a bioelectric pattern that says make an eye here. And they do, even though they're endoderm. Now, this is this was at the time this was completely striking because we're told that only anterior neurectoderm is competent to be eye, and that's not true. You can make eye out of almost anything, and uh, so so bioelectrically, it, it, we we induce that state. It makes an eye, and the amazing thing is there's a couple of amazing things about that. One is uh, when you inject when you when you uh, label the RNA so you can see exactly which cells got your uh, channel. What you see is that some of the cells in the eye uh, have, your, have your, uh, your channel. And so you can see that those were the ones you affected, but they recruited a whole bunch of other cells that were themselves never actually targeted to participate in this eye formation. So there's two levels of instruction. We instruct the cells to make an eye. They instruct their neighbors as needed to complete eye formation because we didn't uh, transfect enough. So, so that's the first thing. The second thing is that we did not uh, provide enough information to make an eye. We didn't have to, you know, the eye is a very complex organ, lots of tissue to cell, cell types. We didn't do any of that. We provide a very simple bioelectrical pattern that's, that's a, basically a subroutine call that says make an eye here. So it makes an eye, the right structure, the right shape, the right size, and then it stops. That's the other kind of really key thing that it's a self-limiting cascade. And so all of the downstream details, as far as uh, all the gene expression, PAC6, RIX1, all of these things, all of that gets managed downstream, we didn't have to worry about any of that. And that's, that's my vision for regenerative medicine. Once we understand how to uh, convince these cells of what they need to do, after that, it's hands off and you let them, you let them do their thing. So I think that's phenomenal. I think it's, it's a great approach to perhaps integrate some of the, the amazing basic science work that you're doing with other approaches that other folks are doing in regenerative medicine. I think they can be complementary in a lot of ways. But I think, you know, the Xenopus has really been a focus in your lab for a very long time. It's 
been foundational to the work that you're doing, driven a lot of the, the fundamental, fundamental discoveries that you've had. Um, and since you mentioned it, we're, we're going to, let's talk about Xenobust a little bit, might as well. This is another technology that's emerged from your work in Xenobust. Uh, for the uninitiated, there are these in vitro biological quote unquote robots derived from the frogs, Empus Levis, and you know, skin and muscle cells, right? They can move around autonomously, like you're mentioning. They can be custom designed. This is really cool. Custom designed through computer algorithms. You can call them simple biological machines, and they've definitely caught the public's eye. And when it comes to the practical applications of these xenobots, like what what do you envision? You know, this is something that's caught the public's attention, these self-assembling, self-moving, uh, you know, quote unquote, biological robots, but for the practical applications of these things, what do you envision and how do you think you can further improve on them? Yeah, and 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 by the way, I should say that uh, the other really, I mean, we, we have lots of uh, model systems in the lab from from ants and slime molds to human tissues and, and in particular, uh, a, a planaria, these flatworms, we should at some point chat about that. But um, the xenobots, okay, so there are, I, I see three basic lines of impact from these kinds of uh, platforms and not just specifically Xenobots, we're going to be making, and of course other groups are as well, making these sorts of things uh, out of lots of different uh, species and in lots of different configurations. First and most obvious kind of near-term applications are going to be specific, useful living machines. So once once we really uh, get better at controlling their uh, their behavior and their and their um, and their structure, you can imagine. Uh, applications in the environment. So let's say biosensing, um, cleaning out, you know, cleaning up plastics uh, out of uh, out of uh, waterways, uh, sensing or, or collecting rare biological molecules or other types of molecules. You can imagine using them in uh, in industry anywhere that there's some sort of aqueous process going on. You can imagine using them in vitro for bioengineering. So let's say you wanted to micro sculpt some sort of tissue for transplantation right that that's what's too too small it make make changes that are too small for a human uh, microsurgeon to do uh you could even imagine uh, down the line you could imagine functions in the body you could imagine cleaning out arthritic knee joints scraping plaque off of the artery walls chasing down bacteria or cancer cells lots of lots of potential applications but i think that that's that's kind of the the clear the, the clear and direct application but i think the maybe in the long term maybe more impactful is going to be the use of this technology as a sandbox in which to crack the morphogenetic code, to really understand the mapping of what kind of stimuli and what kind of environment and what kind of signals do I need to give cells to build whatever I want. Because in uh, figuring out how we program Xenobots for specific functions and specific uh, uh, shapes, we are going to really be able to uh, crack that mapping and apply it to regenerative medicine in the patient. In other words, once we know, I mean, I mean, look, almost every problem of biomedicine, except for infectious disease. So we're talking about uh, we're talking about birth defects. Uh, we're talking about um, uh, a traumatic injury, aging, degenerative disease, even cancer. All of these things boil down to one fundamental thing. How do you convince a group of cells to build whatever you want them to build, right? If we if we could if we understood that how to communicate to that collective intelligence to you know we, I need you to build this kind of organ in this shape, uh, you know, in this location. Once we crack that, an incredible amount of biological issues are going to get solved. And so I see this, this, uh, these biorobotic platforms as a, uh, as, a, as a way to really hone our understanding. that Once we can make the xenobots have whatever shape we want, this will be directly then applicable to uh, tissues in regenerative context that have nothing to do with bots in, uh, per se, but just to use that information to direct 
uh, to direct growth and form in vivo or in vitro for transplantation. Um, and then I guess the third, the, you know, the third layer is really, really a little bit more, a little bit more philosophical. And it's simply the fact that we don't really have a science yet of predicting collective intelligence, right? When you have a group, when, when you have a group of um, uh, subunits, would be the ants or, or humans or cells or robotics or Internet of Things or whatever, when you have a collection of these, these competent uh, smaller units and we put them together into some sort of uh, group structure, we really don't have very good ways of asking what kind of cognition is going to arise, like how sophisticated is going to be this, this group intelligence, what is it going to want, what is it going to be capable of, what kind of goals is it going to be capable of pursuing, we really don't understand this very, very much at all, and it's, it's critical not only for regenerative medicine, but for really uh, kind of um, existential uh, kinds of questions for, uh, for society going forward, so, so I, see these, I see these platforms as, as starting to develop in a, in a safe, very sort of circumscribed context to start to develop that science of, of predicting collective intelligence that is, uh, that has the ability to solve problems. I know we're all, uh, real precious individuals, but you're something else, Dr. Levin. You're a whole different kind of scientist <laughs> in my view. I mean, spent your whole career outside the box. I mean, born outside the box with applied magnetic field on sea urchins. That's where it started and you haven't looked back. Um, and I mean, it, I think it's really about your, your exceptional creativity and um, the creativity of your lab members. Uh, and that is reflected in, in the website, which gives a, a really deep, I'm shifting gears a little bit here, but I was really impressed by your website. It gives a really deep insight into your research, the goals, your process, but also like delves into your scientific inspiration and, and gives a really, I think, nice and clear and comprehensive view of your thinking, of the way you want to approach this and in, in, in the horizon you're reaching toward. It really clearly to me, it took a lot of reflection and effort, or maybe not. Maybe you just break that off in a, on a Tuesday morning. But to me, it looked like you spent a lot of time on it. Are you just trying to answer every possible question a, a potential postdoc might have while also inspiring them to join the lab? Or is this kind of just how you do everything? You think it all the way through first and then, you know, get a nice coherent uh, plan down. Well, it's, it's a combination of things. I mean, and, and I should say the, the, actually the website is uh, quite a bit uh, behind. I've got, I've got all sorts of uh, updates in terms of a conceptual, um, you know, th things that have been developed uh, conceptually in my group over the last year or so that need to be put up there. Uh, in particular, there's not enough focus on, on the cognition aspects of it as it is now. But uh, one, of the, one of the reasons I do this is because I want to um, communicate to people the, really, really the, uh, the, the full impact of, of, this, uh, of this road that we're on, because oftentimes what people will say is, how come, how come you do so many different things, right? I see, I see artificial intelligence and you get papers on cancer and, and, and behavior. And, uh, you know, you've got the papers with, um, all sorts of, all sorts of other, you know, sort of disparate disciplines. And why don't you focus? How come, how come you do so many different things? And, uh, it's important for me to point out that th these are not, I, I don't see these as completely different things. I mean, this, this, this is my version of focus because I think we are actually all focused on one fundamental problem all of these things are different ways to address a single problem, which is the scaling of mind in the physical world. That's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in how cognition is, uh, is, is played out in various 
various manifestations and embodiments, how it scales from little tiny proto-cognitive units that are basically just homeostats and all they know how to do is, is, is keep uh, to, to one you know, sort of simple goal as a scalar um, parameter range and how these things scale up into uh, creatures that have second order high level metacognition and make claims about you know, uh, uh, inner perspective that they have and how they're not machines and this kind of thing, right? There's a lot of irony there in that, uh, in that journey. And so that, asking that, that kind of question uh, in full requires all sorts of, it requires lots of different disciplines. So computer science, uh, physics, uh, biology, of course, um, uh, but, but cognitive and behavioral sciences. And, uh, and, and all of our projects are somewhere in that. I mean, I, I make a lot of mind maps for, for our people internally and, and sometimes for the website, showing how everything we do feeds, to this, uh, feeds into this larger effort to really understand how mind plays out in, in, physical, um, in the physical universe. That, that's, what, that's what ties it all together. And so, yeah, you know, I like to, I like to uh, put up, uh, I like to give up credit where credit is due. I mean, there, were, there have been incredibly brilliant people that have contributed to this idea, and some of them are on the website. Others we have, you know, as you walk into our new um, Allen Center space, up, up on the wall in the main hallway, there are, there are uh, photographs of, um, of specific people with their names underneath. So people, when they walk in, they can see, you know, what, what this is all based on, just some, you know, the, the brilliant uh, folks who have gone before. So I, I, I like it because it inspires me and hopefully hopefully other people find it interesting. Yeah, definitely creativity is a it's a group effort, right? And your yep. your lab is and the perfect example of that. And it's been and really so inspiring to to catch up with you here, Dr. Levin. It's it's you. uh you know, it's a very unique approach to developmental biology, I think, the way what you're envisioning here and what you're doing in your lab. And I don't think we always get that perspective here on the show. I mean, we talk about a lot of cool new technologies and how ways to push therapeutics forward. But I think if we take a step back and really distill down what's going on at the cellular level and these intrinsic biological mechanisms, I think we can learn quite a bit more. So before we let you go, we're going to ask you a couple of peripheral questions like, you know, we like to do that here on the show at the tail end of our interviews. So first off, if you could answer any single scientific question and you've answered quite a few of them and you're attempting to answer quite a few of them, what would that question be? And it doesn't have to be in developmental biology, regardless of your expertise or chosen field, what would that single scientific question that you would want to answer be? Yeah, well, I, I consider myself extremely lucky and fortunate because uh, I work with people every day on the very question that I would like to most answer. And so that's that, you know, I'm super happy that those two things aligned and I can actually do that. Uh, the question that I really would like to understand is, uh, how it is that uh, mind scales up from physics. That's really what I want to know. And specifically where goals come from. I mean, I see, I see um, uh, cognition and intelligence as fundamentally goal-directed activities, regardless of whether they're made of silicon or, or you know, evolved materials or whatever. But the origin of goals is a really profound question and evolution is only part of the answer. Uh, and so that's something that keeps me up at night, uh, you know, kind of throughout since, since the time I was a kid. So that's, that's what I'm really interested in. Absolutely. And it's not just a basic science question. It's also in some ways a philosophical question too, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so if there's a, I guess the last question we'll ask you is if there's one hobby that you always wanted to pursue, but we're never able to do it, you know, what, what would that, what would you do? What would that hobby be that you would want to pursue? Uh, the only thing I really always wished uh, that I had done is, and, and hopefully at some point I will do, is uh, study music. Uh, I find uh, I find it amazing to think about, you know, in, in terms of in terms of science and engineering, 
there's a, I understand the process. I understand how we get from where we are now to where we would like to be and, and how you come up with ideas and how you implement them and so on. But the, but the idea of being able to come up with uh, a piece of a piece of music that uh, that others would find interesting to listen to is such a in in my head as somebody who doesn't play anything and, and my mother was a concert pianist so you you would think that I'd have a better uh, better grasp of it but but just that process and where that comes from and how it is that you do that uh, seems uh, just uh, magical to me and 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 so uh, you know that would be the one thing I would do is I would like to learn to play something some kind of instrument. Well, Dr. Libin, you, you are certainly uh, doing enough as it is without getting into the musical arts, but you're always welcome. And I know my co-host, maybe uh, we like to talk about it on the show. He, he's, he's an amateur guitarist himself. So maybe he could teach you a few things or get you on the bongos, whatever you need to do to fulfill that yen. Uh, we are on board and we'd love to hear what you have to produce. Uh, thank you though very much for sharing your uh, scientific aspirations and knowledge and creativity, expertise, all of it. It's really been a treat and uh, an inspiration. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, really appreciate you having me on. Uh, thank you for the discussion. Uh, keep, keep at it. It's great. Thank you. All right, everyone, that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. When this episode airs, Arun and I will be in flight to the ISSCR 2022. Hope to see you all there. If you don't catch us, then you can always listen to us. We're going to be airing some special episodes. Hope you catch them. Until then, thanks for listening.